Good morning. Thank you all for joining us today for the WAM Global FY 2022 results Q&A webinar. I'll first give you an update on WAM Global's recent full year results. Then I'll turn to portfolio manager Nick Healy to give further update on the portfolio and some of the stocks that we hold. And then senior corporate affairs advisor Camilla Cox will then ask us your questions. So last month, we reported WAM Global's FY 2022 results for the period ended 30 June. The WAM Global Board of Directors declared a fully franked full year dividend of 11 cents per share, which was a 10% increase on the FY 2021 fully franked full year dividend. The increased full year dividend represents a franked dividend yield of 5.6% and a grossed up yield of 8% on yesterday's closing share price. The yield's greater than the average global uh, market yield in, uh, of 2.1% and the average US equity market yield of 1.6% as at 30 June 2022. The profit reserve for the fund stands at 40.5 cents per share as at 31 July, which represents 3.7 years of dividend coverage. Since inception, WAM Global has paid 24.5 cents per share in fully frank dividends to shareholders, and the fund is currently trading at a 7.8% discount to its NTA. If I now turn to, to the portfolio, I'll run through um, the composition uh, geographically. So we've got 66% of the portfolio invested in stocks listed in the US. We've got 14% in Europe. And that's spread across Germany, Spain, France, the Netherlands. We've got 8% in the UK. We've got 5% in Australasia, including Australia, Japan, and, and a little bit in China. And we've got 7% in cash. Now, from a portfolio uh, performance perspective in the year to 30 June 2022, the portfolio was affected by a couple of factors. Firstly, we tend to invest in small and mid-sized companies. About two-thirds of the portfolio is invested in, in these stocks. And the small cap index for the year to FY 2022 fell in line with our portfolio, so it was down about 16%, whereas large cap stocks were down 6.5%. Now, secondly, when I look at the sectors um, that performed well last year, it was really only energy um, that was up for the year, whereas every other sector sector was down. The best sectors were energy, utilities, and consumer staples. Now, resources and energy stocks are not sectors we tend to invest in, given the linkage to a commodity price that can't be controlled. And generally, in our mind, the consumer staple stocks are very expensive for the growth uh, that they exhibit. When we look at the portfolio of stocks that we're invested in, whilst we see that in a number of cases share prices have fallen, as they have for the whole, whole market, we're actually very encouraged by the momentum that the underlying businesses have. Earnings in general have held up very well. And we think that given our focus on businesses with strong market positions, high quality management teams and balance sheet strength, that their ability to navigate what is a tough operating environment and potentially getting tougher is very high. Let me now give you some insights into how we're seeing the global market environment uh, and, and the outlook that, that you know, we foresee from, from here. So we have this situation right now 
where inflation is running at very high levels globally, whether that's the 8.5% in the US, over 10% in the UK, 8.4% in Italy. And we've got central banks around the world raising rates to try to get this under control. The inflation we're seeing is a byproduct of both supply and demand factors. We've had COVID-19 pandemic disrupt global supply chains. We've had the war in Ukraine exacerbating energy and food supply issues. And then we have strong, but on top, uh, as an aside to that, we have consumer and corporate demand, which has been fueled by large amounts of stimulus and reopening economies. So you've got demand and supply dynamics that have really put, pushed up inflation. We've seen that translate into volatility. I mean, I saw a statistic yesterday that said the only years with greater volatility than the 167 days of trading so far in 2022 with the Great Depression, the dot-com crash, the GFC and the COVID crash. But what we've always believed and continue to believe is that this volatility is really is really where you get the opportunities. So, you know, we're using this as we're using the, the volatility opportunistically to add to the stocks we have to invest in new stocks um, that we think have become more compelling given share price moves. From the perspective of interest rates, why are they important and why are they moving interest rates? Uh, why are they moving stock markets so much? Firstly, higher rates drive down valuations as you need to apply a higher discount rate to, to future cash flows. And then secondly, there's the earnings impact where higher rates mean higher costs for those companies with debt, so lower earnings. What we've seen in actual company results, as I mentioned earlier, is that up until now, in general, lots of companies have reported very strong, strong results and they've largely done a pretty good job navigating cost pressures. But markets are forward-looking and have been very macro-focused, trading with the 10-year yield. So as it's risen, markets have come under pressure. And we see a number of trends underway as we look forward. Now, in the past, almost any company that, uh, as we've looked at the last year with the, those inflation, that inflation coming through, we have seen pretty much any company being able to push through price rises. And as you've, you would have seen in your daily lives, everything we consume has, has basically gone up in price. Savings rates were very high coming out of COVID. And so at first, that's been pretty well absorbed. But what we are starting to see at the margin is that the winners and losers are starting to be seen. And, and those companies, as, as rates continue to move higher, as mortgage rates feed into people's actual, you know, the amounts of money they're paying out of their bank accounts each, each week, we are seeing the consumer at the margin start to come under more pressure. On the positive, we do have some inputs starting to come down, such as freight costs, used car prices, commodity prices. The sticky bit is wages, and that's what we think the Fed is very, very much focused on, unemployment and, and the stickiness of wage growth. Uh, what was positive last week in, in the US was the participation when we saw the jobs numbers come out participation rates are starting to come up. So you have had this phenomenon in the US where everyone thought that as stimulus rolled off last year, you'd start to see workers come back in, into the workforce. But for a number of reasons, that's actually taken a lot longer um, than expected. But it is starting to happen now, which is a, is a positive for, for inflation statistics going forward. We think overall the market's at a very interesting point right now. 
where, as I said, those strong companies that actually do have pricing power and ability to cut their cost bases will start to really shine. Those companies that have held up okay to this point because of their ability to push price, but who don't actually genuinely have pricing power, will begin to, will begin to be hit as demand starts to fall and, and the consumer starts to be bitten by higher rates and that wage pressure starts to, to roll through corporate balance sheets. What we've seen is company valuations across the board fall. We've seen share prices of those companies uh, not actually generating any earnings, um, which, you know, the poster child for this would be unprofitable tech companies. Um, they've been hit significantly. And now as economic growth is slowing, as I said, we think those quality companies, those with genuine earnings growth opportunities, will really begin to outperform. We think now more than ever is the time to be stock pickers focused on cash flow generation, companies with strong balance sheets. Whilst no doubt there is the possibility of ongoing volatility, as everyone debates what the Federal Reserve and other central banks will do going forward, we are very confident in our investment process. We think it's very well placed to navigate this. Um, and that ultimately great businesses navigate tough times, take market share uh, in these periods of change. That's, that's it for me for now. I'll now pass over to portfolio manager Nick, who'll discuss some of the themes uh, and some of the stocks that, that, we're, that we're investing in at the moment. Thanks, Katrina. Uh, so I will just say at the outset, I'm kind of getting through the latter bit of a winter cold. So apologies in advance if I have to pause and cough. Um, sound worse than I feel. So the fund continues to be invested in a number of attractive themes. Uh, these include things we've discussed in the past, health and wellness, data and payments. I thought today I'd discuss some of those themes and give some stocks that give a little bit of extra detail into our thinking um, when we invest behind those themes. So we really like the health and wellness space. We are seeing globally aging societies and it is a given that as societies age, people spend more money on their health. So there's a really good tailwind behind healthcare as, uh, as a growth driver. And given the uncertainty Katrina discussed, it's a really attractive space in that people don't tend to cut spending in healthcare when macro uncertainty rears its head as it currently is. So we really like healthcare. We're heavily invested behind it uh, through names including Icon, Avantor, Thermo Fisher, and HCA. We continue to do work in this space. I think it's likely we'll continue to add to the health and wellness bucket over the coming months. We're also invested behind data as a thematic. So it's easy enough to see the strength of data in the economy and in the markets just by the growth of the technology companies. In fact, global demand for data doubles every two to three years. And, and this is a force that's been going for decades and will continue into the future. Now at WAM Global, we often like to find alternative ways to play these things. So we think we've found some fantastic data businesses in financial services and business services that may be a little underdiscovered relative to the really well-known um, technology companies. This includes Gallagher, Dun & Bradstreet, TransUnion, and our two exchanges, ICE and Deutsche Boers. Each of these companies have great data assets and they use those assets to make the world better for their customers and drive great returns for shareholders. 
The uh, third thematic is payments. So we continue to like the shift from cash to digital. This remains one-fifth of payments in the US, and the US is a leading market, so it is quite a bit higher in other markets around the world. However, payments is a very uh, competitive space. There's a lot of startups we've all heard about, um, Stripe, Adyen. So we like to be very selective in how we invest. So we've invested with Visa, which is one of two global payment rails, and Fiserv, which is a payments company we think with some underappreciated assets. <clears throat> so those are the thematics. So I'll give a stock on each just to give some color on how we think about um, investing. So within health and wellness, we really like Icon. After their merger last year with PRA, they're the number two uh, contract research organization globally. And we really like the CRO space. So CROs don't depend on successful clinical trials. They simply benefit as the number of trials goes up. And over the past decade, the number of trials has grown at 10% a year. Um, and so there's a healthy tailwind behind them. Additionally, pharmaceutical firms are increasingly realizing it's better for them to stick to their core competencies of drug discovery and production. And so we're seeing an increasing percentage of uh, penetration going towards the CRO firms with um, 75, PPD say 75% of trials uh, use a CRO today, and that's up from 50% a decade ago. So lots of tailwinds behind CROs. And as I mentioned earlier, very attracted because this isn't a space that tends to show any cyclicality. It's never had a down year in revenues and it grew through the GFC. Now, quite frankly, the market right now is quite concerned about biotech funding environments. We think it is significantly overstating the fear here. That represents around 15% of ICON's revenues and we've engaged with management and experts and done the maths. And we think even if this is weak or weakens, this is a company that can continue to grow through all environments. So we think it's a really attractive undervalued growth company. It has catalysts because we think they've understated the synergies that will come out of the merger. So ICON's a very attractive um, investment, uh, just a reflection of the, the health and wellness thematic that we invest behind. We also, um, in data, we own Gallagher, which is one of those companies where you wouldn't traditionally think of them as, as a data company. They operate in the insurance brokerage space. So that is a space we really like. It's uh, a space that connects many buyers of insurance to many providers of insurance. And in doing this many-to-many -many network, they can unlock better pricing for customers and they can provide a surety of demand to the insurance carriers. So it's a real win-win ecosystem. We really like investing behind win-wins. And because um, Gallagher get access to so much data, so many customers, they have really good insights into what insurance risks are overpriced or underpriced. And so they can really tailor solutions um, to their customers' needs, which creates extra value for them. Gallagher have been performing really well recently, but importantly, insurance is one of those things you don't turn off unless you're going to go out of business effectively as a company. So it is really resilient as well. So Gallagher is another name we really like in the fund. Um, within payments, we're invested with Visa, as I mentioned, but also with Fiserv. Now, Fiserv, uh, the core business is a globally leading merchant acquirer and an issuer processor as well as a bank technology company. 
Now, these core businesses are solid, steady growers. They're, they're legacy businesses, so they're very solid and decent businesses, nothing to get too excited about, um, however, of a decent quality. However, I, um, Fiserv own Clover within the company, and Clover is a technology-driven point-of-sale payments company that competes with Square. Now, comparing Clover to Square is really instructive because Clover process more payments than Square do at 59 billion uh, versus Square's 49 billion. And they've grown at a faster rate than Square have over the trailing three years at 35% versus Square's 23%. These are the kind of things people use to look at the quality of a payments company. So you can see that Clover is a really fantastic payments company within Fiserv. Now, Clover represents less than 10% of Fiserv's revenue, but you get the entirety of Fiserv, including all of those legacy businesses, for only two times the market value of Square. Put another way, if you back Clover out, we think those legacy businesses at Fiserv trade on over a 10% cash flow yield. This certainly hits our um, requirement for undervalued growth, and we think the catalyst here is simply that Clover will continue to grow really well through time. As it becomes bigger, the discount that the market applies will reduce. So we think that creates a really attractive opportunity going forward. So that's a few names um, spread across some thematics, just to give some insight into, into how we're kind of thinking about some of the investments today. I'll pass back to Katrina. Thanks, Nick. I'll now pass to Senior Corporate Affairs Advisor, Camilla Cox, who'll take questions from our shareholders. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, Nick. And thank you to everyone who's written in. If we don't get to your questions, someone will be in touch after the call. Katrina, we'll start with you. This one's from Stephen. You did speak about the decline in the investment portfolio in the year to June. Can you give us some more detail on how you're positioning the portfolio amid heightened market volatility? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John, for the question. So as, as I mentioned um, in at the start, so in terms of the, the investment portfolio and the decline, um, this was largely driven by our overweight positioning towards small and mid-cap stocks, which, as I said, have, you know, were particularly hit um, in that year to 30, 30 June. Um, with macro concerns and volatility, uh, it's not at all uncommon to see a flight like away from small cap stocks towards perceived safety of the large cap names. As I, uh, the other the other point I, I would make is around the the sectors that did well and um, energy, for example, isn't a sector that we tend to to invest in because of that linkage to commodity prices. Um, consumer staples certainly is a sector that that we can invest in, um, but in the main, when we look at the stocks for example, in that sector, which are traditionally very defensive, they're actually very expensive for the growth. And we actually have concerns around, you know, as some of this inflation starts to roll off, who, yeah, who will actually do well coming, coming through the other side? And we think, particularly on some of the producers' side, it'll be very interesting to see how margins uh, track in, in the coming, um, you know, year or two. Um, we think... When we look at uh, where our positioning is and how we've changed it, we haven't dramatically changed um, the portfolio um, as we've, you know, come through that 30 June period to, to currently. Um, we did um, 
reduce some of the more cyclical exposures, you know, in the in the last six months, you know, taking down some of the, the housing exposures and some of our consumer discretionary names, for example, like Adidas, um, where we just got increasingly concerned with the China lockdowns, with some of the margin headwinds that we we could see that they were were facing. So yeah, at the margin, we've we've done some tinkering around those those more cyclical and consumer consumer discretionary names, um, and increase where where we've deployed that has been into things like HC, you know, hospitals, um, increased our weightings in our exchanges like Deutsche Börse, etc., um, and and where we think there are businesses that the market's underestimating that earnings resilience. And Nick, you know, pointed to one like Dun and Dun and Bradstreet. Uh, overall, we tend to, you know, we invest in undervalued growth companies. Um, we maintain that focus. Uh, we haven't been, you know, we haven't invested in the, you know, in excessively valued or unprofitable tech ends of the market. We, you know, we won't, we won't be investing in in those. Um, we're really focused on businesses we think can grow their earnings over the coming years. We're very excited about, you know, the stocks that we have um, in the portfolio. And as I said, it's sort of at the margin where we've we've done some trimming and and some adding. Thanks, Katrina. We'll stay with you. Andy has asked if you could share some of the key takeaways from the recent reporting season. Yes, sure, Andy. So in terms of reporting season, we've seen had various companies report across across the US and and Europe, and and it's interesting. Demand, you know, in the main has held up pretty well. We've seen strong results from companies such as the the ones we own, such as Visa, American Express, Thermo Fisher Scientific, Booking.com. And we think these businesses are great examples of the types of uh, companies that are really prospering right now. They've got strong market positions, they've got pricing power, and they are demonstrating operating leverage. It's been interesting at the mar- very you know very much at the margin but the outlook commentary is obviously front and center it's much more important than what companies have already historically you know what they've reported in the past and that has you know started to turn for some of those more more cyclical it, businesses are starting to get found out so those that actually don't have legitimate pricing power their outlook statements have been weakened their margin guidance has has been weakened um and and so we've seen those companies get get hit. Um, some other thematics I'd say that we've seen in recent times is certainly that switch from where people are spending their money. So you know they've they've gone from spending their money in lockdowns on goods to spending it more on services, on travel, on going out. Uh, and you've seen companies, uh, and we don't we don't own these companies, but say Walmart and Target, for example, in the US predicting much stronger demand than was reality and then getting stuck with huge amounts of excess inventory. Um, and I'd say in terms of when you look at um, the cost uh, headwinds that are that are starting to buy, it's, you know, that labour piece is really starting to, to filter through. Uh, and and yet on the other side, as I, as I um, pointed to, you've got that some of those elements, like as we look forward, like oil is, has come off a bit. We've seen other commodity price, uh, costs come down, uh, and freight and, and used car prices, for example. So there's, there's, it's, it's, you know, there are a lot of moving parts. But I think, yeah, now is where quality will shine, uh, and I think we still see in a lot of cases analyst forecasts and consensus numbers that that look too high. So we think 
that that piece you know still has to come down for for various companies across across the market. Nick, we'll go across to you now. This one's from Nat, and she's asked: Is Apple a buy, or do you hold Apple today? Yeah, thanks, Nat. Um, that's that's a that's a good question. We uh, we don't hold Apple. Um, we were actually just discussing it yesterday amongst ourselves. I think it kind of can be a great example of, of what we want in a company and, and what we expect from a stock. Um, now, I think Apple's a fantastic company. I think uh, pretty much everybody would agree with that. However, they do still generate a lot of their profits from selling iPhones. Um, now, iPhones are a great product, but they are discretionary. Uh, it is possible to put off iPhone sale, uh, to buying an iPhone for a period of time. Um, interestingly, Apple is holding up really well in the market, whereas other discretionary companies, we think the market is kind of rationally discounting them, sometimes too much, just on the fears that they are discretionary. Um, they might have a tough time as economies slow. Apple's not doing that. It, it's, it's really still very, very, very expensive. Um, I think it juxtaposes really well with a holding in, in the fund called Zebra, now, Zebra is similar to Apple, their technology hardware. There's definitely an element of cyclicality to Zebra. Um, the market has marked the price down quite a bit on that basis, um, unlike Apple. However, we think Zebra is a fantastic business. Um, I was on a call with a company, a pet company, last week, and unpromptedly the CEO said, yes, we've started using Zebra products we really like them. Um, he kind of started singing their praises, which was a nice channel check that we didn't expect, to be honest. So great company. The, the key difference is it's, it's trading at, uh, I think, around 14 to 15 times earnings. Apple's at around 25. We like undervalued growth companies. So we really like these more discounted opportunities in the market. Um, so I'd say, I, I wouldn't say Apple's not a good company, but I would say we think there's better opportunities elsewhere. Zebra is a great example. That there are plenty of others, but um, yeah, great question. Thanks, Nick. We'll actually stay with you. This one's from Elizabeth. She's asked, "How will the ongoing rate rises impact companies in the investment portfolio?" Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. Um, I think Katrina touched on this, but I, I guess just to add some thoughts. Um, so all companies, all assets are negatively impacted by higher rates. That's simply a function of a higher opportunity cost of capital, uh, but it doesn't affect all companies equally. Uh, as Katrina mentioned, we're very valuation disciplined. We weren't invested in the unprofitable tech, really expensive ends of the market. As a result, we have been able to avoid some of those really um, unpleasant markdowns in assets. Uh, just to throw some names out, like Peloton, Okta, um, Viva, great companies, but just very expensive, who've seen share price falls of well in excess of 50% this year. So we haven't been affected by that. Um, but nevertheless, all stocks are impacted by higher rates. Our stocks are no exception. I guess some stepping back thoughts on higher rates is as prices go down, as rates come up, you do expect a higher yield and a higher prospective return from stocks. So the the silver lining to the cloud is looking out today, a lot of stocks have gotten a lot cheaper and they offer really good returns from here. 
And just with equities, they are a, a fantastic place to be invested through the cycle. Obviously, these valuation resets are painful to go through. But I think it's very possible to get too caught up in the short-term um, rate changes and forget that through-time equities have done very well. And our expectation is that would that would certainly be no different um, today. Thanks, Nick. Katrina, Graham has asked, how do you think the economic situation is evolving in Europe and the UK, given its proximity to Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, thanks for the question. So, I'd say Europe at the moment is is the region of biggest concern for me right now in relation to recession risk and ec economic growth. We've really seen leading indicators like ISM's PMIs move into contractionary territory, and we have seen consumer sentiment fall. Um, the proximity to Russia, Ukraine, and the reliance on Russian energy is causing significant headaches as they head into into the winter. Uh, and and last like last week with Nord Stream supply not having been brought back on, it does increase the the risk going into the winter of not having a, a, enough energy. Um, when we're speaking to companies, you know there is caution. There is you know they are saying consumer sentiment is weak. Um, when they're you know when they're talking to the the government government say in Germany around supply availability, uh, the situation and the clarity isn't, hasn't been great. Their message is that supply will be prioritised um, based on firstly heating homes, then companies producing for areas um, such as the pharmaceutical industry, you know, making sure medical supplies are the, are the priority, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, look, we are cautious, um, particularly, you know, on anything manufacturing related in 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 Europe, um, we think you know ultimately they will get through it. They have to transition off relying on on Russian energy, which they're desperately trying to do. But you know they can't do it quick enough right now. Um, you know they're trying to up the storage um, of of of, um, of you know gas etc. Um, and you have seen electricity and gas prices, you know, really shoot up. We had one company saying they're paying 10x, 10 times what they were paying before. Um, so, look, it's a real, it is a real issue for Europe. Um, and and in terms of the portfolio, you know, the, it's not a significant issue for any of the stocks we hold directly. But there is the possibility of a longer, deeper recession uh, in Europe, which does make us very much consider carefully you know, what sort of stocks we want to own there, what we would add to, what we think can still, you know, do do well in this environment. For, you know, say an SAP, which we own, you know, they're a global business listed in Germany. Um, you know, that trend to, you know, adding, um, you know, investment in IT, in automating your businesses, et cetera, is, is, is ongoing. Um, so, yeah, we think we're, we're very selective in terms of what we're investing in Europe right now. You know, ultimately they'll get through it, but it is it is certainly um, both the Russia, you know, the the energy issue, um, and more generally the consumer sentiment being weak um, does make Europe pretty, you know, reasonably tough at at the moment. Thanks, Katrina and Nick. On that, Ian's wondering: Do you think Europe and the US as well will enter a recession, and how would that impact the holdings in the portfolio? Yeah. Um... Uh, that's a great question. I, I, I suppose Katrina did a lot of justice to the European outlook um, just in her answer just just prior. 
so I so my view would be is if you look at past examples of situations where central banks around the world have raised rates, it has historically been hard to avoid um, a recession of some description. So my base case would be that, yes, we probably should expect a recession in the US and Europe over the next two years. Uh, it can take longer to start than expected. Often these things happen with a, a lag. Central banks talk about a long and variable lag. I think that's very much backed by the data. So I'd say, yes, my expectation is that we probably will enter a recession. Um, very different situations in Europe and the US. Uh, the US has very healthy consumer balance sheets and um, very low unemployment, although Europe has that as well. The energy situation Katrina discussed in Europe is obviously a considerable headwind. Bringing it back to the fund, um, how it will affect us. So we've we, I really like the situation we're in. We have a lot of resilient uh, names. The changes Katrina talked about in terms of trimming and adding, we have been generally increasing the resilience of, of the fund. We have very healthy um, exposures to uh, healthcare that I discussed. Um, the exchanges are quite resilient, business services, defense. Um, so, you know, I think quite resilient in terms of the structure. So I would have a, an optimistic view on our company's abilities to perform well through any kind of recession. Um, and I would say it's, it's very much about magnitude, not just yes or no. A, a shallow recession is very different from a deep recession. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily expect at this point some significant deep recession in the US at least. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Katrina Cameron said that he recently saw an email that you and the team have been travelling uh, to meet companies. He's asked, what's the general sentiment of these management teams when you meet with them? Yes, thanks, Cameron, for, for the question. Um, so we've been doing a lot of travel uh, across um, the US in the last few months. Will, um, from our teams currently in Europe, Nick and I'll be in Europe later in, in September as well, um, I mean, last week I was in uh, Tennessee, in uh, Nashville and Memphis, for example, which, um, you know, you'd ask who's there, but actually some phenomenal businesses have headquarters in random places all over the US. Um, so, for example, in, in Nashville, you've got businesses such as HCA Healthcare, the hospital's business that we own. You've got Dollar General. Uh, in Memphis, you've got AutoZone. And, and so... I'd say generally in terms of the, the management team, it very much, and, and their sentiment, I guess, is it, it very much depends on the sector they're in. Um, so say AutoZone, uh, the CFO I was talking to last week, you know, he's very, you know, genu generally not, you know, overly concerned about the, the backdrop right now, uh, but that's a function of the business he's in. So typically, you know, they've got very high exposure to DIY which is, you know, working on your own car, et cetera, which is a, a sector um, that tends to do very well in, in recessions. So, you know, he, he, you know, they welcome people. Unfortunately, you know, people losing their jobs because they have more time to work on their cars, et cetera. Um, whereas, you know, when I, I was in Chicago earlier in August, as I said, I went and saw Target and Walmart, et cetera, and they're much more cautious. They are definitely seeing consumers trading down uh, and and really taking advantage of the fact that these companies do have excess inventory uh, and are promoting uh, more. So 
I think, and then a, a, another, I was up in um, Boston, for example, at a growth conference, which is a lot of tech companies, small, mid, uh, and and small cap tech stocks. And they've really uh, had, you know, a, obviously a very tough time of it. And I'd say, you know, as, as Nick pointed to it, like those unprofitable tech companies aren't, you know, where we tend to invest. But I think what's positive is, you know, and money's been, free and 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 you know very cheap uh and so none of them have had to earn any money but what is happening right now is they're realizing that they have to cut cut their cost base bases they're starting to fire workers uh and and they're realizing that the markets aren't just there you know to hand out money uh you know anytime they they need it so i would say you know it really depends on the the type of business uh, again, you know, when you talk to, say, a visa, a um, booking.com, they're seeing phenomenal demand right now. Um, and so it's a mixed picture. Uh, definitely, you know, if uh, I guess, you know, it feels like we're harping on about it, but if you don't have that pricing power and, and the ability to pass it on, if you're starting to see interest rates bite demand, um, I think, yeah, those winners and losers are going to start getting found out and already... Um, you are seeing pockets of companies that are starting and management teams starting to say things are tough. I mean, for example, FedEx, um, to give another example, we don't invest, you know, we're not invested in it. I think it's a, a wonderful business. But, um, for example, they were already saying back in June um, that things were starting to get tough. Uh, and, and you know, they're talking about labour inflation amongst handlers, for example, was tracking it up 20% year on year. That's fallen to up 10% year on year, but that's still a significant um, cost to come through um, when actually demand has started started to weaken as, you know, e-commerce names have come under pressure, uh, et cetera. So I'd say mixed picture, um, generally, you know, pretty strong across, you know, the businesses that, that we invest in. But, yeah, when you look at the wider um, environment, it's, it's, it's patchy. Thanks, Katrina. And I believe you touched on this a bit earlier in the presentation, but if you could add some more thoughts, Stuart's just asked, why does WAM Global trade at a discount currently? Yeah, thanks, Stuart. So I think there's a few factors here in terms of licks often do trade at a discount at the start uh, when they when they come onto the market. We saw this with WAM leaders for the first few years and with Wilson Investment Fund, this actually happened for seven years uh, and they both now do trade at a premium to, to NTA. We've seen that over time, as we establish the track record of paying consistent dividends uh, and generating capital growth, uh, that discount should close. From the fund's perspective, we have seen significant volatility in global markets since the, the lick began. We had trade wars, we had COVID pandemic, we had Russia-Ukraine, and now inflation and interest rates. Um, and we've seen global licks across the board trading at, at discounts. Um, on the positive, the discount for WAM Global has narrowed from what was 18% at 30 June to that 7.8% um, I talked talk to. Um, and so we think, you look, over time, yeah, we're confident that that will, will come continue to come in. We're, we're um, you know, obviously the fact that we've, built up that profit reserve and have the ability to continue to pay um, dividends and grow those dividends over time, we think, you know, we'll set up the fund 
uh, well going forward. Thanks, Katrina. Nick, Sun has asked, where are you seeing the most compelling opportunities right now? Yeah, thanks, Sun. So from a new ideas perspective, um, we, we obviously our process is to buy undervalued growth companies with good management teams and a catalyst. Uh, but we're very much big fans of quality businesses, as most people are. Um, these are the ideas around moats, um, barriers to entry, durable thematic tailwinds to growth. Um, now, what we've found since launching the fund is <clears throat> a lot of these companies are outside of our mandate in terms of expensiveness. We certainly would love to hold them, but they have been too too expensive. And in fact, since launching the fund, a lot of them have gone even more expensive through time, um, putting them even further out of range. 2021 being a great example of, of a lot of these companies we thought being unjustifiably priced. Now, what's happened this year is we're seeing a, a lot of these really high quality companies come down significantly in price. Generally, generally, we don't think the businesses are broken. We just think the price got out of hand. So from a new ideas perspective, I think I wouldn't be surprised if we were doing our hunting in that really high quality end of, of the market. Um, now, I, to be honest, I, I think the most compelling opportunities are some of the things we hold in the fund. We were very valuation disciplined um, last year through, through the very strong markets. As Katrina mentioned, we hold small to mid-cap stocks. So we have found that even though we entered on disciplined valuations, they have gotten cheaper this year. Um, so as it currently stands, we keep an eye on all these things and we, we believe our companies are, as I mentioned, kind of resilient in general if we have economic uncertainty. They're definitely cheaper than the market and they grow at or about faster rates than the market, about in line. So I'd say really the, the most compelling opportunities are the things we hold. Um, but at the margin, we'll probably be, be hunting in some of the really high quality spaces um, as a general thematic. Obviously, it's bottoms up stuff. So it's it's whatever whatever hits uh, our process um, as we do the work. <clears throat> but thank you, Sun. That's a great question. Thanks, Nick. Katrina, back to you. Terry said, WAM Global Options are going to expire. If you could just touch on that. And then when should investors exercise them? Thank you. Thanks for the question. Yes. So the 12th of September uh, is, is when the options expire. Um, the exercise price is 254 for those. And so with the ship, you know, whilst we can't give financial uh, advice, um, and we did send a email recent uh, a letter recently regarding um, the options and the, the dates and the different avenues there. Um, they are well out of the money and it would be cheaper to buy the shares directly on market would be my, uh, uh, yeah, would be the information I would give you there. Thanks, Katrina. And if we can go back to dividends um, briefly, Grace said you've got a very healthy profit reserve. Why not increase the dividend? Thanks. Uh, so it, the dividend decisions are, you know, are made by uh, the board, but it has been the intention since uh, the inception of the fund to deliver a, a stream of fully frank dividends to shareholders. And, you know, we're obviously pleased that the full year dividend has been able to be grown each year since we started in 2018. Um, 
what I would say is with the profit reserve available, and that's that 40 and a half cents, which is equivalent to three. 0.7 years uh, of dividends at the current level, it does provide uh, us flexibility to continue on this path. Um, but yeah, as I said, that is a that is a board decision. Um, yeah. Thanks, Katrina. Uh, this one's from Dan. It's for both of you. Maybe we'll stay with you, Katrina, then go to Nick. He asks, what is your highest conviction stock on a five-year outlook? Um, so look, there's lots of stocks in the portfolio I'm, I'm really excited a, a about. Um, one, I would say that I think, you know, probably, you know, I think it's got great long-term potential on that five-year outlook and, and possibly, you know, doesn't, it, like, they don't get the credit for, for the outlook and the, the strength of demand looking forward is Quanta Services. So, they're responsible for maintaining and upgrading the electrical grid and transmission lines across the US. Um, so, I mean, I remember 15 years ago um, meeting this company and there was all the talk about how bad the US infrastructure, uh, you know, how bad US infrastructure is, how bad, how much the grid needed investing in. Uh, and that has, you know, and and how that would come to fruition over time. And and look, it has, but it's been, it's still grossly underinvested in. Uh, and and so, and as, you know, that need to integrate renewables into the system going forward, the need to add electric um, vehicles um, onto the, you know, their demands for, for, for power onto the grid, these are only increasing uh, the requirements and and you know the resiliency needed um, amongst you know transmission systems uh, across across the US. So I think the demand outlook looks um, very strong. I mean we we've even had more recently the Inflation Reduction Act announced in the US, um, which does provide even further certainty around you know investments for the renewable sector. Um, Quanta's the largest provider. Um, of these services in in the US, they bought Blattner, which certainly cements them also as the biggest player in the renewables area. Um, so I think from the demand side, it's very um, you know very exciting. I think this management team has done a phenomenal job in terms of investing. They've known for ten plus years that the labour situation was very tight for them. They've invested in training, um, you know, really skilling up their workforce uh, to ensure that they have the capability to deliver. Uh, so I think you know that's a stock that I'm I'm really excited about. I think you know there's catalysts ahead in terms of earnings upgrades, um, and and I think you know the market doesn't necessarily appreciate you know the longevity of the, this the demand and and what these you know extra bills will mean even on top of that. And I'll I'll jump in. Um... Uh, with with uh, thought as well, um, Dan. I, I really like the the five year framing because I guess that's a useful time frame to um, make sure that we're thinking about not just the shorter term, what's going to happen with uh, economic uncertainty and so forth. Uh, so I think my top idea would be Icon. Uh, I've already gone into a decent amount of detail there with how durable it is, how high growth, and it's really attractively valued today. Um, so I don't think it's fair to do Icon. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll do another one, which is Stroa. Um, now, Stroa are the number one um, out-of-home advertising company. They're pretty much entirely in Germany um, for our purposes. They have 60% share in traditional out-of-home and 90% share in digital. 
the the digital screens out of home. Um, so fantastic market positioning. However, out of home advertising is cyclical. Um, that is just the case, and so it, it probably will go through some uncertain times in terms of if economic uncertainty is uh, a negative. Um, however, on a five-year view, I think this is just fantastically valued. They have two companies within Stroa, um, kind of like Fiserv, where I just don't think they're getting credit for them. They have Statista or Statista, uh, which is a leading um, online data company, uh, and they have Assam Beauty, which is a um, beauty company uh, in both bricks and mortar and retail uh, and online. Both assets are doing fantastically. Neither asset contributes significantly to the earnings profile of Stroa, the company, but have a significant amount of value. And if you strip out those assets, and they have already made a very clear plan around bringing those to market or selling them to a strategic buyer, if you strip out those assets from Stroa, you're getting this clearly industry-leading out-of-home advertiser on a, a, a very, very attractive valuation. So I don't have the exact maths in front of me. I think um, it's around an EV to EBITDA of five or six. It's just really cheap, um, notwithstanding the cyclicality that obviously advertising faces. So I think Stroa is a really interesting one. Icon would be my first answer. Um, but there's, there's kind of two on a five-year view. Thanks, Nick. Katrina, back to you. This one's from Bruce. He's asked, how is the team diversifying its investment so there isn't so much concentration in the US market? Thanks for, thanks for the question. Um, so, look, it, it's fair in terms of we do have a significant amount of investments in stocks listed on, on the US, um, you know, exchanges. I would say... One point on that is that a lot of the underlying earnings for these businesses are actually global. So um, the exposure directly to the US economy is lower than, than the weighting of, of stocks listed on, on, on the US, on US market. Um, and, but the other point is that we build the portfolio from a bottoms-up perspective based on where we're seeing great ideas. Um, and, and the US has, has been, you know, where we found the biggest um, percentage of, of great businesses that we think have been at compelling valuations. Uh, I would say as time goes forward, I mean, as I, I said earlier, in terms of where I'm cautious, it is in Europe, but we are spending, you know, a considerable amount of the rest of the month over there. Um, we are constantly talking to, to companies and there, you know, things are getting well and truly thrown out. So there will be opportunities um, there going forward, in my view, and the other place that I think will have some really exciting opportunities is is also is Japan. Um, it's been quite you know closed up in terms of COVID, so ability to get on the ground, speak to the companies has has fallen. Um, and but I think and the share and the market actually you know has been a big underperformer. The yen has also fallen. Um, but if you see that reverse. Um, you know, now valuations, you know, in, for lots of companies are, are starting, you know, to look look very cheap um, and you could get the double benefit of the, you know, of the yen um, coming back and and also those companies, um, you know, still continuing to to grow um, as as we look forward. So I'd say, you know, they, there are hunting grounds outside the US that we continue to look for ideas, um, but we do, you know, pick stocks bottom up. The US has 
you know, a number of fantastic managers of, of businesses. Um, so it is a great place to, to find really exciting um, businesses. But we look everywhere um, and it's just a matter of, yeah, marrying up, you know, our process, you know, which is, you know, as we've, uh, you know, as we reference around management teams, industry position, earnings growth potential and valuation, and then being able to identify a catalyst for, the, for those businesses. Thanks, Katrina. Nick, Greg has asked, he said the share price for, of Avantor has fallen substantially in the last few months. Have you been adding to your position? Uh, thanks, Greg. So we're, we have a, um, a position size that we're happy with. Um, we haven't been adding because we, we do think it's a good expression of our views. Um, on the Avantor share price, I think it's a great example of how the market currently is uh, kind of unwilling to deal with uncertainty or um, is certainly looking to shoot first, ask questions later. Uh, the second quarter results were a combination of really strong core operating performance combined with the fact that they do have currency, issue, uh, currency headwinds from reporting in US dollars um, and generating some of their revenues in Europe and Asia. Obviously, the US dollar has been extremely strong, uh, so this represents a headwind. However, currency once adjusted for isn't the kind of thing that I would generally expect to be a, you know, an ongoing headwind to a company's performance. Um, however, you do want to check that there's not transactional issues with producing in high currency environments um, and shifting shipping to low currency environments, which would impact margins. Not the case at Avantor. So the currency headwinds we think are very much short term in nature. Um, uh, nevertheless, the market kind of has, as you said, taken the stock price down quite a bit. At the end of the day, Avantor is a healthcare company doing, you know, life sciences tools. It's very resilient and durable. Uh, it's at a significant discount to the market and to the other companies that operate in that space. So we think it's a really attractive opportunity today. Um, however, no, haven't been adding to the position just because we're happy with, with where we stand. Thanks, Nick. Uh, we'll stick with you for one more uh, before going to Katrina. What's the biggest risk you don't think people are talking enough about? That's a good question. I think um, I think we've we've done justice to talking about risks. Um, we, I guess, in running the fund, we do tend to think about what can go wrong, not what can go right, because you really want to think about those things and, and protect yourself ahead of time. As they say, the upside will take care of itself. I suppose one topic of conversation that springs to mind that isn't really being discussed as much as it would be if not for Russia, Ukraine, um, rates going up and, and many other uh, events occurring in the world is we are seeing a situation with the periphery of Europe starting to show a little bit of distress. Um, Italian bond spreads to German bond spreads, um, the Bund are at elevated levels. They're not at 2010, 2011 levels um, when the European debt crisis happened. However, it is kind of on our radar that the European Union as a as a construct is is challenged from the fact that they are monetary union but not a fiscal union. Um, so we would be looking out for potentially a reflaring of um, European periphery issues, um, the conversations around Greek exit, uh, the support for Italy, 
that's a risk I don't think is getting enough airtime, um, just given the many other things occurring in the world. Thanks, Nick. Katrina, uh, one more question. This one's from George. He's asked, can you explain the profits reserve? And when you say cash level of 7%, does this include the cash held in the profits reserve? Thanks for the question, Yes. Yeah, so the best way to describe it is that the profits reserve represents the historical earnings of the company. Uh, it's quarantined into a s separate reserve when it's generated in order for the company to pay a fully frank dividend. Um, a company can pay a dividend whenever it wants under the Corporations Act, but in order um, for it to be franked, it must be able to point to profits in a reserve. Uh, so in terms of the, whereas in terms of the cash and the equities of the company, that's where the assets of the company are positioned now uh, in the present time. So profits reserve is more of an accounting concept representing the history of earnings, the equity section of, of the balance sheet, um, whereas cash and, and the portfolio is the assets on a balance sheet where the money is invested today. So we've quarantined that 40 and a half cents uh, into the profit reserve from prior profits generated. And that means that as we go forward, we can continue to pay dividends, even if we didn't generate any more add to that profit reserve um, by generating more profit um, going forward. Thanks, Katrina. And thanks, everyone, for the questions. If we didn't get to yours, uh, someone will be in touch after the call. Katrina, I'll pass back to you if you had any closing words. Thanks very much um, for... And thanks to everyone for, for dialing in. Uh, a recording of the call will be available on our website shortly. Uh, as always, please get in touch with us via phone or email uh, at any time with any questions or feedback uh, you might have. And if we didn't get to your question, uh, as Camilla said, we'll, we'll come back to you. Um, but thank you very much for your time uh, and your support.